assault on free and fair elections is just such a threat, literally. I've said it before. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. I don't know if I've ever heard anything more hyperbolic than Joe Biden there. That is not hyperbole. If that's not hyperbole, what is? That's honestly like, I mean, the guy is known for saying very stupid things. That that has to be an all timer. (laughs) Unbelievably stupid, crazy statement. Being like, listen, folks, if you don't let us take over elections completely, uh, it's worse than the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Like. What? This is this is so central to their game plan, and I think that's why it rotted his brain to the point that he would say something this stupid, is whenever they want to take something, whenever they want to uh, take over something, they cloak it in either, if you don't agree with us, you're racist, if you don't agree with us, uh, it's the worst thing since 9-11. Like, let's be serious. But this, this is the is same insane. guy. Yeah, and this is the guy who called, you know, the election law in Georgia, Jim Crow 2.0, and that turns out it failed. So now he's just like, He's escalating now. Now it's a civil war. Now it's a civil war. Well, listen, I want to get deeper into this, but welcome to the Ruthless Variety program on a special three-episode week. We've got a doozy for you today. I mean a doozy. We got two guests. Two guests. We have Hollywood Hen out on the mall reporting live from a free Britney. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Rally event? Rally event, something like that. Our guests are Congressman... Carlos Jimenez, he was, of course, born in Cuba. He represents Florida's 26th district, which is Miami, the Florida Keys, all those great things. But he pr- provides an excellent perspective on the issue of Cuba that we've been looking for. He's going to explain some stuff w- to us. And the other issue that's popped up this week in addition to elections is the economy and inflation. And there's literally no bigger expert in all of Capitol Hill than Senator Pat Toomey. So we brought him in to talk about that as well. That's so great. And we have a game. And then we have a new game to, to, to we, unveil. We are unveiling Veep or Veep. Is <laughs> this Selena Meyer from Veep or our dear Vice President Kamala Harris? We will be back with that game later. It's like, look, candy. We got a little broccoli. We got two interviews. Uh, Man, this is an all-timer. Yeah, this is a great episode. This is an all-timer. We're giving you <laughs> we're giving you everything we got this week. Let's get into the Biden stuff first. You mentioned do it. You mentioned it off the top. This is insanity. But but honestly, it's all insanity. At this point, like literally it's all insanity. And the fact that they are using any amount of oxygen at all to continue to try to take over the election system in this country when we've got all of this other stuff going on really speaks volumes about their priorities. In a nutshell, this is what they're saying. If you do not let the Democrats federalize elections, you are a Confederate. This is how insane their rhetoric has become. They're saying you are a Confederate soldier if you refuse to allow the Democrats to federalize elections. And and you see, because they keep falling on their faces with the crazy, crazy stuff that they make up. Like, first they're saying voter ID is, is Jim Crow, and, and Biden was like, that's worse than Jim Crow, that's Jim Eagle, which makes no sense. But anyways, 
Now they're backing away from voter ID once they see that the overwhelming number of Americans support it. Except they're still talking. I mean, here's the thing. They say, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm totally open for voter ID. But what they're advocating for is the exact opposite. It's about banning showing ID at the polls. They right. haven't taken that out. It's no, still yeah. in there. No, I mean, they just say whatever they want. Jim Clyburn says no Democrat has ever opposed voter ID. What are you talking about? He himself, and he himself did. <laughs> called it voter suppression. I mean, it's truly, it, it's incredible that they've gotten to this point. It's incredible that we've flown Texas Democrats in on a private plane full of Miller Lite to begin talking about and wasting the time of their constituents and, frankly, the entire nation on a bill. They're up here, by the way, to advocate for H.R. 1. That died two weeks ago. Right. It died. They killed it. You know, they're going to deal with it again. They'll kill it again. There is not 50 votes, let alone 51. There's not 48 votes for it. They're still talking about it. That tells you everything you need to know. They don't actually have an agenda here. No, like we've brought it up before that typically when you get a president, they come in the first hundred days is key because that's when you see what is their like signature goal. And they, they try to try to move on that and get that done. And you see nothing, absolutely nothing from this administration. They haven't been able to execute on anything. Even their own party's like, no, what, like, what are you talking about? They can't round everybody up to get behind any sort of agenda. So all they have left is to say this crazy stuff that, hey, if you don't agree with us, you're Confederates. It's like uh, they're reduced to, to running on January 6th and some variation of if you don't believe we can ballot harvest, you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, that's basically it. That's it, it. Actually, it's the Republicans who wanted to defund the police. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. That's their that's their midterm message. They're not talking about important things like overdoses. Yeah, I, like th this this number came out and it was hor horrific. Like the number of overdoses hit a record ninety three thousand last year. Jeez. In the midst of the pandemic, that's twenty nine percent increase. They're not, they can't talk about that. This is this is like don't take the bait 101 where they there's absolutely no way, you know, the Dems, CNN, MSNBC, every other publication that's left wing is all held. None of them can talk about the overdoses. They can't talk about how inflation expectations keep going higher and higher. They can't talk about how the price of gas keeps going up or how the cost of living in general for every hardworking American is going up. They, they want to keep that out of the news. They have to create this kind of story. Dude, it's it, back to your, your point, Holmes, about how they're sucking all the oxygen out of the room talking about a bill that died two weeks ago. All that they can do to address inflation is tell you you save 16 cents on your food on the 4th of July. Which is, by Pro the way, Problem solved. Pro problem, problem solved. And then they move on back back to this bill that's been dead for two weeks. I mean, I went I went to the grocery store the other day to just buy some some meat, right? I got like a grill. I want to do some smoking of some meat. And um, and the, the beef, like all of it was more than double. Everything is expensive. More than double what I paid like a month ago for the same cut. And they're going to tell me that we're saving 16 cents? <laughs> Go to hell, man. Are you kidding it's me? An, it's a complete lie. Groceries are way more expensive. And, and that's the thing is we keep telling you right now Republicans could not ask for a better setup of where we're bringing to attention problems like the rising cost of everything. The crime that's going on in these cities right. is out of control. Like you see the murder numbers, all violent crime numbers are, are just going sky high. And they can't talk about any of this. None of it. None I, of it. I They're just want to hit a few numbers here real quick just to put a little meat on the bone here. Car rentals up 87.7%. Oh, 
year-over-year change. Used cars up 45.2%. Gas up 45.1%. Laundry machines up 29.4%. Air travel up 24.6%. Moving up 17.3%. Hotels up 16.9%. Furniture up 8.6%. And by the way, it's that's if you can get your hands on any of Right. That. Yeah. Try to order some furniture or a washing machine. Yeah. They're like, yeah, no, no, no problem. We'll get it in there sometime in Christmas twenty. Furniture. Anyone check out the lab- the lumber supply chain right now? <laughs> Not so good. Not so good. Not so good. Well, listen, I-, I wanted to delve into this because consumer prices, it was announced on Tuesday, had increased 5.4% in June. Five point- That's the highest since 2008. If you take out food and energy, right, take out those two things, inflation increased 4.5%. And that's the largest since 1991. Jeez. 1991. That was the Gulf War. Right? A lot of things happening. We're in, what I needed was an, ex, an explainer session, right? We got one from Kudlow, got his perspective, which I thought was very valuable. Pat Toomey's the other guy who is every single Republican on Capitol Hill asks him about the economy. So let's get to that interview. I want to welcome to the program one of the smartest guys I know on fiscal issues. You should listen to him because basically every Republican senator does. Senator Pat Toomey, how are you, sir? Hey, Josh. I am doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Well, look, and it's a good time for that because we got a lot of economic news that we need to sort through, and there's a lot of things going on in Congress that I, I'm we got to sort through and figure out what it all means. And so, who who better to talk to than, than Pat Toomey on this stuff? Well, I, I, very kind. I want to I want to first start with the report we got Tuesday on consumer prices. Uh, increased 5.4% in June. I mean, we've been talking about inflation a lot on the program. What's your sense of all of this? Yeah. So my my big concern here is um, it's several there's several layers to it. So first of all, inflation is with us now, right? It's not a it's not a speculation, it's not a projection. It's here, it's real, and it's pretty bad. Uh, that that's a that's a high number. There are various ways we can measure inflation, but by most measures, most conventional ways, this is the highest rate of inflation we've had in a very long time. By some measures, going back to the 1980s, but by any measure, at least for 10 years. So, what are we to make of it? Here's here's my concern. My concern is that the Fed that that inflation is almost always monetary policy, right? It's the, it's monetary policy that drives inflation. It's not a, a spike in oil or something else. Right. The Fed, we know, has been engaged in this completely unprecedented, very long-term experiment of pumping massive amounts of money into the economy, both by keeping a zero interest rate on overnight funds, but also this massive bond buying that they have been doing for years now and that they continue to do. They're doing this at a time when our economy has gone past the recession, past the recovery, and we're in a full-blown expansion. Right. Right. Very, very strong economic growth. The Fed is projecting 7% real GDP growth. And yet they're still keeping interest rates at zero. They're still buying $140 billion worth of bonds every month. And we're seeing this spike in inflation. Now, here's what really worries me. The Fed has created a new paradigm, which I think is dangerous. And the new paradigm is we will allow inflation to average 2% over some indeterminate period of time. So that means who knows how high they're going to let it go since it did run below two for a while, right? That's number one. 
And then they compound the risk by saying, oh, and by the way, what we see today, we think is all transitory. It's all going to go away at some point. Well, that means sort of by definition, you've got to wait and see, right? If it does in fact go away. And if it doesn't, then that means it's been with us. And (laughs) right, Uh, this isn't rocket science, right? And so what happens then, you're sort of guaranteed that you're going to be behind the curve. Is that kind of like a, like a fancy way of saying, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a little worse than that, right? Because it's like, I don't know, we'll see what happens, but I think it's going to be okay. And, <laughs> yeah, and, right. and the reassurance and, there. That and I'm not going to do anything for a while in case it's okay. <laughs> so I hope it's going to be okay. I really certainly do. But I think the danger is much greater than what the Fed has suggested. The danger is greater that inflation will be more serious and might not be transitory. And if they're late to show up to do something about it, it means what they have to do will have to be more severe. And that becomes potentially damaging to the economy to bring inflation back under control. It's a, it's a difficult genie to put back in the bottle when it gets out. And so I, I've been urging them for quite some time, don't be encouraging that genie to get out of the bottle yeah, right. so much. Right. So what is your sense in terms of what Congress is looking at and all the infrastructure bills? And obviously we had the COVID relief bill and, and all of the, the spending for COVID relief in 2020. How much of that just sort of in influx of government spending from the legislative side do you think has the capacity to help exacerbate this problem? Well, I think government spending contributes to inflation if it is paid for by monetizing the debt that's created, right? So if, if the government is, is sucking the money out of the economy with one hand and then spending it with the other hand, that's not necessarily inherently inflationary. But if instead of taxing or borrowing it out of the economy, the Fed is printing it, then that very much contributes to inflation. That's a very big danger. We are, by the way, it turns out we did way more than what was necessary in terms of the business last year, not even close. It was wildly inappropriate to do that massive blowout bill that the Democrats passed on a party line vote in, what was it, March? And now the idea that we're gonna go and do several trillion more, it's it's madness. This is is gonna do some real harm. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to get into next, which is we read yesterday that the Democrats have sort of agreed amongst themselves for another $3.5 trillion budget, which is just like stunning and, and filled with, you know, what my view is a whole bunch of things that would absolutely crush our economy. But they've done that sort of in tandem. And this is kind of legis- legislative minutia. They need a budget because they got to put it together to get reconciliation instructions to basically try to pass something that is a wish list of every liberal in this country. And they said they're going to do it. They wanted to link it to the bipartisan talks that were happening. Where does all that sit from your perspective? Uh, it's, we don't know is the short answer, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the negotiations continue with the bipartisan group on a, an actual infrastructure bill. Um, but as you have pointed out, separate and apart from that, the Democrats have announced that they've got their social welfare bill uh, that they are, are beginning to flesh out. And the big breakthrough that they announced last night was an agreement on how much they're going to spend. By the way, there's something extremely pernicious about most of what is in that bill, if you ask me, Josh. And that is, it seems like a systematic effort 
to make the middle class dependent on government. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just, you, that's what this is about, right? It's, it's like, okay, so you're married and have a couple of kids and you have two incomes and you're a middle class family. Therefore, the federal government needs to pay for your childcare, pre-K, has to pay for uh, family leave, make you eligible for Medicare, give you free community college. Wait a minute. I, I thought actually we would, should we, we, the idea was that like a middle-class family with income would pay bills. They would, I, yeah. you know, they would decide. Wasn't the, whole point, they, wasn't the whole point that we could take care of ourselves on a family income, that that was like the goal of America. But, but see, that's so, that's really important because that is not the goal of yeah. the Biden administration. And I think there is a transformational agenda that they have in mind. And that is to have the federal government take over basic responsibilities for the vast majority of American families. And by the way, don't worry about your taxes going up. We'll get some rich guy to pay for it. We'll soak a rich guy somewhere. Um, they're going to find out they run out of rich guys. <laughs> this, you know, the American middle class is massive. And this is a very, very bad idea to make everybody dependent on government. And by, those, by the way, those rich guys, it, it kind of depends on how they vote, right? Because if they're, if they're liberal rich guys, we got to salt tax. We got to make yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You notice that, right? Yeah, yeah. We got to make sure you still get to deduct these massive inflated taxes you choose to pay because you live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> it is truly, truly amazing. If you're, yeah. if you're in a blue state, you know, your taxes don't worry about. But the yeah. red state guys, you got to take a look right. at that. <laughs> no, it's terrible. Um, so, so what's the, what's the status? I mean, I, I have some concern about, and maybe I'm alone on this because I think there's a lot of smart people that have been in the middle of it, but I have some concern about sort of Democrats leveraging good faith negotiations here on a bipartisan side to try to, you know, have the, the patina of bipartisanship for this whole thing while they ram through a $3.5 trillion deal and a whole bunch of tax increases right next to it, which is what Nancy Pelosi's basically said that she wants to do, right? And oh, yeah. In fact, she's gone so far as to say that if we pass in the Senate the bipartisan actual infrastructure bill and send it to her, she's going to put it on a shelf until she gets the big welfare blowout, three and a half trillion dollar um, expansion of government. Um, I think we don't know how this ends. You know, there's another school of thought, and I don't know which one is right, Josh, but the other school of thought is the physical infrastructure is the most politically popular part of this whole massive agenda, at least broadly speaking. And if that were to pass, and certainly if, if it looked like it was going to be signed into law, would that take some of the wind out of the sails of all the rest, which is really massive tax increases to pay for expanding the welfare state? Yeah. That package that would remain, if the physical infrastructure were broken out, that remaining package would be less popular with a handful of moderate Democrats left in the in American elected office, especially, I think, the House. So... It could play out either way. It could be, as you described it, that it's all a bait and switch and a dynamic to, to do both. But it could also be that the infrastructure bill makes it harder for the Democrats to do the rest. I think we just don't know yet. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you've been a, a stickler on, rightly, in my view, over the years is making sure that if you're going to be doing these things, that they're paid for. And 
there's been a lot of talk about the bipartisan compromise and how it's been paid for. Are you satisfied with how that's coming together? Or you still have some questions. Well, I think there's a lot of questions left, Josh. Uh, yeah. So uh, my, you know, I was part of an initial group that was trying to negotiate something with the president. And my position, I was very clear, very adamant. I still am, really. The vast majority of any infrastructure bill should be paid for by repurposing money from the previously passed bills. There is well over a trillion dollars that we authorized, that we appropriated, we passed the legislation, but it's so much money that they can't physically spend it in time. It's, it's unbelievable. Like when I travel around Pennsylvania, you know what the, what the headline story is in a lot of newspapers? The local municipalities that have never seen so much money in their entire com combined lives and have no idea how to spend it. What, what, what are they gonna do with all this? I mean, and it's that's it's terrible, right? And, and so it's really, it's ridiculous. What they'll, they'll find a way to spend it eventually. And so what I'm suggesting is, well, wait a minute. We all say we agree on the value of infrastructure. Why not use that money for infrastructure? Um, the problem, of course, is the administration, they don't want any part of that. They want, they want the, the, the municipalities to spend it. And then they also want to spend it. New spending. Uh, yeah, so... So I think we should be repurposing that money. Um, this bipartisan framework contemplates really very little of that, some, some, but very little. Um, so I'm not satisfied. I, I'm not saying I can't get there, but, but I haven't seen uh, enough to comfort me that we're not going to end up just, just going to the printing presses for this money, and that would be a really bad outcome. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams, I mean, because you start for, the, for our audience that are, is not familiar with your career, Senator, you're like an OG uh, club for growth guy, right? Yeah. I mean, you are a fiscal conservative if there ever was one. Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams when you first got to the Senate that we'd be talking about like four or five trillion dollars in a calendar year? Absolutely not. Uh, by any measure, it's, it's absolutely staggering. We now have a debt load that uh, is... Uh, only exceeded by World War II debt levels. I think we all understand why we ran up a massive debt in World War II. This is not World War II. We, as I said earlier, we're not in a recession even. Not, we're not in a recovery. We're in a full-blown economic expansion post-recovery. Right. And we're, we've got to spend trillions of dollars of money that we don't have. This, this makes no sense. Well, I think you put your finger on it. This is an ideological battle. This is not oh, a concern. This is, this is about exactly what they want to do. And I think, you know, my running theory has been that they had a, a nice test run during COVID when they can tell you when you can work, who can work, how you send your kids to school. I mean, that yeah. seems a lot like what the, the progressive movement has in mind for the long term. Absolutely. Let's be honest. Uh, it's the far left that is the authoritarian. They have to be, right? They, they're what their whole mission is to sort of overwhelm the natural freedom of individuals making decisions for themselves and impose their worldview, the far left's worldview. Well, a lot of people won't like that. So it becomes a, uh, a, an authoritarian exercise. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a terrible direction to go in. Yeah, it sure is. Well, listen, I want to I want to pop one other question in here just because I'm curious. You are a, a a believer in Bitcoin, and I've heard you're like basically the only one I know who can explain it in ter in terms that. And so, for those of us who don't know the difference between like a Chuck E. Cheese coin and Bitcoin, <laughs> uh, give us your thoughts on on well, where it's at. 
so let me, there's a nuance here that I think is important. Um, I am completely agnostic on the price of Bitcoin. I have no idea whether it, it should be, will be, might be worth a million dollars or worth $5. That um, I think is, is entirely a speculative uh, question. What I am a believer in and what I'm uh, fascinated by is the possibilities that come from the underlying technology. The use of a distributed ledger and blockchain technology to have non-intermediated transactions verified in a foolproof way, I think is a powerful technological innovation because I think it's going to allow people to develop applications that will run sort of on the rails of these systems. It's not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum and, and others. And, and I think it's going to revolutionize the way we do a lot of transactions, the way we keep a lot of records, and it's going to be more efficient. It's going to be a lower cost. It's going to be really fast. And that whole um, ecosystem is something that I'm very bullish on and very interested in. The value of a given token on a particular platform, that I, I have no idea what, what it should be worth. Um, but, you know, uh, they they do have one important virtue, which is uh, the government can't come along and, and create a gazillion of them. And uh, so it's conceivable that they become a store of value, an alternative to a fiat currency. That strikes me as more plausible than broad adoption as a currency. Oh, interesting. So it's more, more. I never really thought about that. It could be a baseline currency if you've got a bunch of governments inflating uh, their dollar. Well, well then it could actually be, be a, a, a baseline. It could be a store of value and play the role that gold has historically played. Yeah, to exactly. some degree, I'm not suggesting it displaces gold. I think gold, uh, there's a good reason that it's been a store of value for 5,000 years and it's likely to continue for a while anyway. Um, and, and, you know, some of these uh, cryptocurrencies, one of the things that I think is a huge impediment to them becoming a widely used medium of exchange is the volatility uh, of these currencies. But that problem can be solved. You could tie, and some have tied, um, cryptocurrencies to either a fiat currency like the dollar or a basket of commodities, for instance. So you could stabilize the coin. And, and like I said, people have. And then you then then it becomes more plausible that it becomes a medium of exchange, but maybe a little bit less plausible as a store of value because you'll import the problems of a fiat currency. Anyway, I think it's a fascinating space, it and is. I think we should encourage innovation in this space. Well, thanks for the thanks for the rundown. I I can't do it myself, so the listeners need to get it from from the absolute expert. I've got one political question before we get to our three big questions, and. Yes. It obviously pertains to your state. You are one of very few Republicans who've had a lot of success in Pennsylvania statewide. This is obviously with you deciding to retire and go on to bigger and better personal things. I'm sure your family is in love with the idea of getting you home. Um, the seat comes open and in 2022, we're going to have a really hot race there. One that we absolutely have to win in order right. to maintain the, the or, or get the majority in the United States Senate. What's your sense of where things are sitting right now? Uh, I think that uh, first, I think the environment is good right now and could very well get better. Uh, I think the radicalism of the elected Democrats, the overreach of the Biden administration, the wokeness, 
the 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 threat of real inflationary problems. I think the cumulative effect of these things is likely to reinforce the historical pattern that you know so well that a midterm usually goes badly for the party in the White House. That's good for us. I think it's setting up that way. What's also very important is that we have a good candidate. Right? We need a good nominee to win the Republican primary. And I, I think that's entirely possible. I think we just don't know yet. It's an open field. There are multiple candidates. It, it, there probably will be additional candidates getting in the race in the coming weeks and months. Um, so we'll just have to see how it plays out. There's no obvious sort of guy who's been waiting in the wings to run for this seat. There's no obvious front runner. Um, but we do have some good candidates and some strong candidates. So hopefully a really strong one will emerge, and in which case I'll be bullish on our prospects. Yeah, well, we've, we've started ticking through them here on the Variety Program, and we've been in, uh, interviewing a few and giving good. people a good sense. And I agree. I think you're going to have a, a bunch of very qualified candidates, but they're going to need you eventually sometime about the time they get the nomination to give them the roadmap because it has been elusive for an awful lot of Republicans. It's a, it's, it's a narrow path. Pennsylvania is uh, very challenging, but it can be done. You know, in 2020, while, uh, although Donald Trump did not carry Pennsylvania, we did win two out of three of the row office races. Right. And as you know, you know, a race for auditor general or treasurer, these people are never really well known to the electorate because there aren't the resources to make them well known. So it really is an exercise in partisan intensity. And we won two out of three of those. And by the way, we came very close in the third where the incumbent who did manage to win the Democrat is likely to be the gubernatorial nominee from their party. My point is he was um, he very narrowly won re-election to the attorney general seat he already holds despite outspending by a wide margin a, a woman who had never run for office before. She was a great candidate, she's, a, she's terrific, but uh, it suggests to me that this is a, a winnable governor's race as well as a winnable center race. I love it. I love it. Good stuff. All right. So here are the three big questions. Yeah. This, is, this is the stuff everybody pays attention to here. So if you could pick your last meal on earth, what would it be? Uh, it would be um, a bowl of clam chowder that my wife makes, a medium rare filet, um, some corn on the cob from the local growers that people wait in line for an hour to get the corn on a cob. It is so good. It's unbelievable. Is this like a roadside stand that they're, they're it, it, well, but it's a big farm. And, oh yeah. Okay. And, but yes, it's, well, they've got, it's more than a stand really, but um, it's, uh, it, it's just terrific. And then um, my wife's chocolate decadence dessert. That, that would be, oh, uh, that'd be my last meal. That's a good lineup. And you've given that some thought. I can't object to a single one of those. those no, are, that sounds great. Good. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Get it on Father's Day also, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. If you already lined that up, if it's either birthdays or Father's Day, basically, is your exactly. own shot. Exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> Twice a year, I've got a good shot. <laughs> I love it. All right. So second question, if you never got into public service, and I know you've been, you've been involved in business for much longer than your public service career. Uh, but if you weren't in the public service, you were never a senator, what do you think you'd be doing with your life? Well, you know, I think I probably would have continued the path I was on when I ran for the House. I was in the bar and restaurant business, and we had multiple establishments, and they were successful, and, and it, was a, it was a good time. This was a time in, in 
the eastern part of Pennsylvania where we were operating in the Allentown area, the Lancaster area, where the national casual dining chains hadn't really arrived yet. Right now, of course, all of the national chains are ubiquitous. And, and right. but but we were there first. And so we were in a position to to do really, really well without having to worry about competition from uh, those chains. Now they they all obviously arrived and so the, the competition we would have faced it, but but I, I think I would have continued down that path for a while and, and grew the chain of restaurants and who knows where that would have led. Well, if we if we ever open a uh, a ruthless bar and grill, Senator, we're going to tap into your your vast you, knowledge. You look me up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. So, final question: What motivates Pat Toomey more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Yeah, I think the thrill of victory. The thrill of victory is uh, is terrific, and uh, I try to put the beats behind me pretty quickly, and uh, and uh, you know look for the next opportunity for a victory. Well, you've had your share of them through the years. You've been absolutely terrific. Thank you for taking the time today and, and keep Thanks us updated me. on this. All this, we, you know, we try to sort through all the economic stuff during the Biden administration, but they're just so crazy when it comes to all of this that we need somebody to translate it for us. It's, it's pretty scary stuff, but uh, I'm happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Josh. Hey, thanks for your time, Senator. I mean, the guy, the guy is really smart. Um, and a really valuable perspective. I also like the Bitcoin stuff. You know, he like he has a way of explaining all of that, which I, I, I find incredibly insightful. And that's useful, you know, because we get that information on our side. We got to get it out to the folks to know. Like, these are issues that matter to people. You think any American who has dealt with unemployment and a pandemic over the past year cares about Biden? What his idea is of the biggest tragedy since the Civil War? No, they care about everything costs more. So we got just that, you know, great to get that explanation. We got to just stay on target with that. Absolutely. Guys, we're going to Iowa pretty soon. Yes. I'm so excited about this. I mean, I can't stop thinking about it. I know the minions are hyped. I've gotten DMs from a whole bunch of them who are coming along. It's going to be out of this world. But a big piece of this is yesterday. The Iowa State Fair released their food vendors and the new creative dishes that are going to be available. Yeah, 63 of them. I know you're pretty excited. I'm very excited. This is this is actually the thing I think I'm most excited about for the trip. In particular, one that caught my eye, the peanut butter squealer by Waffle Chicks. Okay. It, uh, basically, it's kind of like a breakfast version of a corn dog. Uh, breakfast sausage, bacon, like wrapped in a waffle and then drizzled with peanut butter and maple syrup. So wait, wait, so it's, there's, it's a hot dog, like a corn dog, but wrapped with all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to kind of look like a corn dog. Will you promise the listeners that you will eat that with no hands? I will not. I know it's going to be a rip, a, a rip and, and, and pull. I think we prefer no hands. I think I'm going to have to take a Lipitor after I eat this. <laughs> But we can discuss the specifics. Okay. What's the, the, the like famous Iowa fair food? Is it's like pork chop on a stick, right? Everything's on a stick. Everything. I think on that's a stick. like the one. Like you know, whenever you've got a presidential candidate, they're all like, "Okay, you got to have the pork chop on a stick." I'm I'm absolutely going to do that because you have to have, you know, the 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 big traditional one. But there's another one on this list, but it's not from Iowa. But it's Tennessee Twinkie. All right. It says it's a spin on the classic jalapeno popper. Tennessee Twinkies are a mixture of smoked chicken, 
pepper jack cheese, and cream cheese stuffed into a cord jalapeno pepper. If that isn't indulgent enough, they're also wrapped in bacon. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, look, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to probably bring medication with us. Yeah, on this right, deal. Yeah, right, right. But like the one thing that we're still starting through, and I think we could use some minion help, frankly, is how we play a game with the food, right? I mean, there's been some talk about a bingo card, and like you'll just put a bunch of it on, and like somebody's got to run around the fair and try to fill out a bingo card. Yeah. There's also some some talk about something that more resembles a fraternity hazing. Yeah, yeah, like we pick each other's food. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, this this just occurred to me. So, so one of the things that intrigues me about this Tennessee Twinkie is you get two animals in one meal. That's something I like to do. You know, hit as many numbers on the in the animal kingdom on right. a plate. Assert your dominance as the, the the top of the food chain. We should get like thirty minutes to go out there Eat and as many animals? notch the most animals. Yeah. <laughs> well, gonna... So I like that. I look, 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 look. I like that. I like that because it has a very uh, supermarket sweep like yeah, vibe yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, no. sup- Notching animals. <laughs> it's all fun till you run into the Rocky Mountain oyster. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you know that's going to be the one that gets you over the top if you're willing to do it. I can see Duncan eating that for sure. By the way. I, I do like to win. <laughs> we should. Uh, that sounds like a game. We Whatever do it a takes. A couple more, but I want to see that. How like, many animals? That's yeah. the question. Like, how many can you knock off? We should. We, you have a time limit, like fifteen or twenty minutes. Yeah. You, you, you hit. You know the the main. Uh, you know where all the restaurant row is, and just get as many animals down as you can. And it also minutes. requires you to be fleet of foot too. It's not. You know, it's yeah. not just the eating. You got to also figure out how to get to all the various stations. Which I'm told, you know, there's some spread there. Yeah. So you got it. You got. It's going to be hot. Yeah, oh yeah. It's going to be hot. It, that would be a real endurance competition. Oh, that's a good one. I think that might be what we're going to do. I got I'll, I'll tell you. I'm going to be able to eat a lot of animals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Let's go. I'll uh, be two on the list from that Tennessee Twinkie. So good. All right. So, here's what we need to do. Hollywood Hen has been busting her tail all day down at the Britney Free Britney whatever event here in Washington DC. She's got an, a, a report for us. Let's cue her music. Oh, great intro music. Hen, what do you got for us? Yeah, so Ruthless Podcast, we took we took to the streets today and headed down to the Lincoln Memorial for a Free Britney rally hosted by Free Britney America. There were tons of supporters out there um, showing their support for Britney and trying to get her out of this conservatorship. And we actually spoke with um, the leader of the organization and got an interview with her. So let's go ahead and roll that now. You know, more people are showing up. Yeah. So what would the goal for today be for you guys? Definitely. So as I was saying a little bit earlier, we have a threefold goal approach. We want to see a bipartisan support for change, whether that is through a bill through congressional hearings. We want to see congressional and federal oversight within the probate court system, as well as federal charges to be filed against those who are involved in the conservatorship because um, it can be a RICO situation. What do you think is going to happen today? Do you have any like hopes for today's 
hearing in LA? Absolutely. Um, all the free Britney groups across America and across the world want Britney to be able to choose her own attorney today, to have an attorney not just assigned to her by the probate court system, which that's a systemic system within itself. It's not having outside counsel come in, being able to choose her own. That will make a big step in her being able to extricate herself from the conservatorship. Do you feel like all these movements are making, you know, an impact? And do you think that like, do you think we're on the track here to actually get her out of this? You know, that's a great question you ask. I definitely do because I think anybody um, who prior to it becoming more in the national consciousness across the New Yorker, across the New York Times, the Hulu documentary, it sounded so far-fetched. You thought you were watching the plot of a B-movie and now that we know there are facts behind this, this is the reality, I think it's something where we're a little bit all shocked and scared because we know that this could happen to us and so change has to happen. It has to come from the federal level and we are citizens of this country and that is what our government is meant for, to address gross violations of our civil, human, reproductive and equal rights. So it was really impressive what they did, putting this rally together in, you know, less than a week and had they had tons of support. And we're going to keep following this story. And today's a big day um, with the court. They're, they're going to decide or we're going to hear if they um, accept the petition of her co-conservators who wanted to step down um, the trust who was overseeing her finances. They asked to be removed from the co-conservatorship with her dad. So we'll see if they accept that petition. And then we'll also hear if um, it gets accepted that she can request a new lawyer for herself that's not court appointed. So big decisions today and we'll continue to follow the story. So everybody keep supporting Brittany out there. Free Brittany. Hollywood Hen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for that report. Good Lord, we're keeping our eye on it, as everybody is, honestly. Yeah, really. It's a kind of an international story. Anyway, thanks. Um, guys, let's get to this new game. I've been excited about this since the concept was first floated. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Veep or Veep. Uh, and we're going to read some statements here. They're either going to be from Kamala Harris or Selena Meyer, the fic- fictitious vice president on the comedy show veep uh we have some new game show music for this game so let's play that song is too long i said yeah, that Smug was says opinion. it's too long i knew he's gonna say it's too long he hates long music but you, you gotta complete the melody yeah yo i like where you're going with that that's a nice little wind up gets the people going it gets the people going it should be just the first like da, 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 veep or veep and that's it oh i think you're gonna have push back online on that. <laughs> oh we'll see <laughs> um all right so so the way we're gonna play this game is I'm going to read four statements. Uh, unlike Demogerno, I'm not going to read all four and say, you know, which one is Kamala or which one is Selena Meyer. We're going to go round by round with this. Okay. You know, statement by statement, you're going to say Kamala Harris or Selena Meyer. This is going to be so tough because honestly, they're indistinguishable in many, many, many ways. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to signal you. Like a, a a one for 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 Kamala and two for Selena. Okay, okay. So you want to keep it? Yeah. 
Or you stuff. guys could you could workshop well, it together. Let's band it around a little bit, and then you can do your thing. All right. Okay. Statement number one, and this is uh, the topic is a question uh, about smoking weed. <laughs> I have, and I inhaled. It was a long time ago. I think that it gives a lot of people joy, and we need more joy in the world. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's tough. Here's the thing is because like we all know Kamala put out that thing like she was like, oh, yeah, I used to love smoking weed and listening to Snoop and Snoop hadn't even dropped his first. Totally. Uh, (laughs) Which is just so good because, man, fully made it up. There's such a reason that she dropped out before Iowa. (laughs) It's just so bad. Um, But that also does sound exactly like something Selena Myers would say. on It does. It does. My guess is. Oh, man. My guess is Selena on that one. All right. Um, so here's the thing. I remember when she was going through the Snoop thing on the campaign trail. Yeah. And she was trying to convince African-American voters that she like sort of got the joke, right? And so she went on a whole bunch of different stuff, including that breakfast club mm-hmm. situation. And in, I, if memory serves, she said a lot of really crazy stuff at the at that breakfast club thing. And I feel like she was trying to convince them that she was cool. Yeah. Right, like working overtime, which clearly didn't work. Like nobody bought it. I'm saying Kamala. Holmes is right. Wow, Holmes, Kamala. It brings people joy. What a it dumb thing to say. It, that sounds like an it's HBO just a comedy. It's just a weird thing to say. It it's a weird way joy. of saying okay. it. Did you? Do you have any? Con- was it the breakfast? It was club? the breakfast. Yes, club. I knew it. Wow. I knew it because I remember being like, "Oh my." God, well, you have to remember during that primary, remember everyone was tweeting out Kamala is a cop. Yeah. yeah okay. And she put all these single mothers in jail for yeah. their truant children, which, by the way, you know, with all these Dems up here on Capitol Hill being truant, you would think she'd be out there rounding them up. She must be so conflicted with that. So conflicted. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So she she had this narc vibe and she She's was like, trying no, to do it. It's yeah, fun. It's joy. fun. It brings people joy. Joy. It's like, good God. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right. What's the next one? Statement number two. Um, what else do we know about this population, 18 through 24? They are stupid. <laughs> that is why we put them in dormitories. <laughs> I mean, I know in her heart Kamala probably believes that. Oh, wait. You know what? I think I feel like I heard this one. I think I feel like Kamala said this. Oh, my God. No. What's your guess, Holmes? Uh, I just can't. I can't believe Kamala would say it. I, I literally can't. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Selena Myers on that. My guess is Kamala. I think I remember her saying something this boneheaded. It was Kamala. No. Yeah. yeah. She's that. It was Kamala. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yeah. Oh it my. does sound like something Selena Meyer would say. Uh, but Total, no. Like I could picture her saying it completely. Right. I mean that is that's a that, I can see HBO right I can yeah. see her saying that, that is astonishing. <laughs> so, Why they put him in dorm? By the way, non sequitur. Like huh? that makes no sense. That seems like the opposite thing you do yeah. if you truly believed everybody was really sick. Well, okay, all right. So that's one to one. Yeah, in the competition here. Statement number three. Every woman knows a little bit about the author Ayn Rand. That she learned from the worst boyfriend she ever had. <laughs> um, uh, What's your guess? I feel like 
I'm I'm gonna go with Kamala because I feel like for Selena Myers, Ayn Rand was a little intellectual for her. Like she, she was like known for not reading, mm-hmm. right? So I guess I'm gonna say Kamala. My guess is Selena because that's way too witty for Kamala. It is witty, and it is Selena Meyer. Ah, got it. All right. Yeah, Selena Meyer is a lot funnier. No surprise. (laughs) Okay, Smug is up. One. Yep. Final statement. The thing most people don't realize is that neediness is actually a form of strength in many respects. It is the greatest form of strength because when you are needy, you make it clear what you need from others. And setting clear expectations for others is one of the most effective ways to assert power over them. Oh, no, no. That is so tough. Wow, that's a tough one. What a find. You First of all, you got to go because I went first on the, on the second two. Yeah. You got to go first, but I... You, Power over them is really where I get on the thing. That's the thing. It's an interesting transition because, like, the the power because, like, Selena was kind of like just power hungry but ineffective. So that kind of made me think it's Selena. But it's like, man, I mean, I mean, what we've heard so far from Kamala. I'm gonna go with Selena. All right, to make it interesting, I'm gonna go the other way with Kamala. Smug wins. It was <laughs> Selena Meyer. I kind of figured that was, but it was kind of my only chance to knot things up. So I had to go the other side. But that is beautiful because I can almost see yeah, Kamala saying see, that. Well, so, Kamala saying that. The, the one thing about the last statement is it reads and sounds like she's stalling for time, which is something Kamala Harris constantly does totally. when she's trying to dig herself out of a hole. Yeah, But it's also kind of like the mission statement for the Dems. Right. They're like, uh, you know, Everyone stay in quarantine. Get your check. We'll tell you when you can get paid. We'll yeah. tell you when you can do whatever. We'll keep your sh- shops closed. You know what I mean? It's right. like our mission statement. Yeah, being That's dependent makes you independent. Yeah. yeah, Selena Meyer actually laid out, as a as a faithful Democrat herself, uh, yeah. laid out what the Biden agenda ultimately is. <laughs> That's the is. game plan. <laughs> I love it. What a great song. Let's get the song back in for, for to get us out of here. So now for just a little bit more broccoli, because um, this is important, because you're not hearing it from the Biden administration. Nope. What's happening in Cuba is important for several reasons. One, it's happening in our backyard, right? It's happening 90 miles off the coast. Really important. It's a communist country that has repressed its people for generations, and the people have had it. They have had, they're risking their own lives, their own livelihoods. And they're standing up to an incredibly repressive generational regime in Cuba. And the Biden administration took a look at this on Sunday and said, oh, they're doing a coronavirus. Uh, they're like, this is a, a, a coronavirus protest. It's like, here we go again. Here we go again. Benghazi was a YouTube video. Yeah. 
it's, it's like okay, this is just some coronavirus protest. Let's be real. But if you like read between the lines a little bit on this, like why? What would be the motivation to mischaracterize what's happening in in Cuba? And the reality is, is because what Cuba has going on is very close to the agenda that a lot of these progressive Democrats actually want to enact. Absolutely. Right. It's a centralized state that tells you when you can go to school, when you can't go to school, who goes to work, what time you go to work, who gets paid, who doesn't. When we where do we send the two thousand dollar check? I mean, like Michael Moore did a whole movie where he was like, look how great Cuba's healthcare system is. And yeah. Like, do you think Michael Moore got Cuba's uh, coronavirus vaccine? <laughs> Where'd you get your vaccine, Michael? And, the, and like the part of the reason these people are protesting is they're like medical care is, is completely awful. Yeah. They're like, it's terrible. And, and, and this for so long was being held up as like a model of what we should do over here by, by a lot of these left wing, not just pundits, but elected officials. Like, of course, you're not hearing from AOC and you're not hearing from Bernie Sanders. And it's funny when you do hear from 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 some of these DSA, which is essentially now just like the core of the Democratic Party, the, the Democratic Socialists. They just added socialists at the end. Um but they're not dunking on it. And, and, and when they try to argue, they're like, oh, this is this is because of an embargo. It's like, oh, so so your communist paradise needs free trade. to be Right. Able to right, right. Right. We would fulfill Marxism, real Marxism, yeah. if only if these capitalist pigs would finally trade with us. Yeah, true communism just, hasn't been tried until we have free trade. Right. It's just an absurd premise. Completely ridiculous. And and it speaks to a much larger flaw in the progressive vision. Right. Which is why you got to pay attention to this stuff because it's real. And there is no, if you really want to know, like if you want to ask somebody who's invested in this country deeply to their core, you know, like many Americans have been for generations that we're apparently now losing part of, go to South Florida. I was saying when I was in Miami, I was so thrilled. The population there, you have have a huge Cuban population. They're just like as anti-socialist as possible. It was amazing. It was wonderful being in a major city where they're like, we hate communism. Yeah. We hate socialism. And and the situation with Cuba right now exposes such a hypocrisy on the media's part, on the Democrats' part, because you you, you we're not hearing any of these, oh, but it says, you know, uh, uh, give us your tired masses on the Statue of Liberty. No, the DHS is saying we will not let Cubans who, who have proof that they're being persecuted, who have proof that they could be killed. We're not going to let them in. The DHS uh, Secretary Mayorka said, no, we're not letting them in. And, and and we're not getting any of these stories about, but it says on the Statue of Liberty right. they should be allowed. And you know why they're not letting them in? Because they'd come in and vote for, for Republicans. Bingo. Miami's a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, think about the cynicism of that. Yeah, that's exactly it. They're like, listen, folks, we'd rather you get shot than come here and register Republicans. Not our kind of voters. Unbelievable. They're not our kind of voters. Meanwhile, the southern border is wide open. Yep. Rolling yep. out the red yep. carpet. Oh, my gosh. Well, listen, we need some expertise on this, which is why we turn to Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Let's get to that interview. We wanted to bring somebody in uh, this week to give us some insight on what's going on in Cuba. And who better to talk to than Congressman Carlos Jimenez? Congressman, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm great. You represent Florida's 26th congressional district, which is Miami and all the Florida Keys and all that good stuff. So I imagine you got a lot of people who are uh, interested in making visits to your particular district. 
Yeah, so I see a lot of a lot of congressmen and women like to uh, have uh, fundraisers in my district. Yeah, they uh, yeah, anytime any excuse to get down there, uh, and I use every excuse to get down there too, into the Keys, especially. You know, I was the mayor of Miami Dade for about nine and a half years. I uh, did not really represent Monroe, but the people in Monroe knew me because they have the same. It's the same uh, media market. And so they knew me for a long time, uh, but um, you know the Monroe, Monroe, Monroe County, the Everglades, uh, the Keys—they're a really neat place. No, oh, they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Well, C- Congressman, not a lot of people know this. You were born in Cuba. Your family left amidst the Cuban Revolution, immigrated to America. Uh, so you have a sort of a firsthand knowledge of a lot of of the oppression the Cubans have faced for now generations. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little insight into what's happening this week and, and what we as Americans should be focused on here. Well, what's happened this week was very, really an organic, uh, spontaneous uh, demonstration throughout the island. There were like 45 different cities that had demonstrations and there were peaceful demonstrations, basically people shouting libertad. Libertad in Spanish means freedom, liberty. Uh, so all this, uh, you know, uh, hoopla that's this is somehow connected to COVID or food or whatever. Right. They, they weren't shouting comida. It was, you know, lado comida. They weren't shouting, you know, necesitamos vacuna. No, they were shouting libertad. So, you know, give us food. They weren't shouting that. And that was, that was, that was they, they weren't shouting that. They were wasn't shouting that the statement that the White House put out on Sunday night that was somehow about about COVID and about healthcare? And I mean, it just it's, it seemed ridiculous. It is ridiculous because, and, and so, you know, I guess they don't understand Spanish, you know, <laughs> you know, when, uh, when the people are shouting libertad, they were shouting about freedom. They weren't shouting about food or vaccines or healthcare or anything like that. And it's, uh, they're shouting freedom because they haven't had any in 60 years. That's right. It's pretty simple, you know, and they've had enough. Uh, and so, um, this was spontaneous. It's grassroots, uh, organic. Uh, first time really it's happened across the island. So you may have had, you know, in, in the last 60 years, maybe a you know, demonstration in, Miami, in, in Havana or maybe in, uh, you know, Camagüey or something like that or Matanzas, but not at the same time. And this all happened at the same time. So this was very unique. Uh, and, and I'm sure it scares the dickens out of the government that something like this, you know, they can see their controls slipping away. And so what we're seeing is the government taking extreme, um, you know, extreme reaction to it. Uh, they are taking repressive measures. They're beating up people. They're, they are, you know, even killing people uh, there. We don't know the numbers because they shut down the internet. So you can't really get right. much, uh, much of images, et cetera, out of Cuba right now. But um, you know, we know that they've also jailed hundreds, if not thousands of dissidents that come into the homes and basically drag them out and put them in jail, which is par for the course for, for Cuba, but it may even be a little bit more repressive than normal because it's such a, it's a, it's on, on such a big scale throughout the entire island. So what are the, what are the chances? I mean, we've watched over the years, as you've said, a number of uprisings and, and obviously the people who have fled Cuba under great personal hardship uh, to the United States. And I, it seems to me that, that if we've learned one thing about the communist regime in Cuba is what you just des- described. When they feel their power start to slip, they turn against their 
own people and, and become even more oppressive than they were before. So you look at this, you know, from our perspective, what are the chances that there can be any sort of success in terms of a, a change there without some help for the Cuban people? Well, obviously, no, we do, we do need to help. And one, one of the things that we cannot do, though, is throw a lifeline to the regime. Right. And so, so here are some, some of the things you can't do. Okay. First, let's start out with what you can't. A, you can't re- uh, uh, ease up on restrictions that, uh, and the sanctions that we have on Cuba right now. Um, we know, I know that there's been some blocking of access to credit. Cuba doesn't have any credit in the world because, frankly, it does, can't pay its bills. And it can't pay its bills because its, based, its economy is based on a failed system, which is uh, communism. Right. Uh, and communism just does not work economically. It doesn't work economically. It doesn't also work socially. Uh, and so uh, Cuba doesn't pay its bills to the point that even China doesn't even, doesn't even give it credit anymore. And so Cuba's having a really tough time accessing credit uh, because it doesn't pay its bills. It's run out of people that they could, uh, I guess, bluff or, or con into giving them money. And so now they're running low on basic necessities, et cetera. Um, so you can't ease up on the sanctions that we've imposed on Cuba. You cannot negotiate with the regime. And one thing that, that, that we, we need to understand is like with Maduro or with Cuba or any other communist socialist uh, regime, all they want to do when they negotiate with you is they're just, they're just bidding their time. They're wasting your time, okay, and they're gaining time for themselves so they can consolidate power and, th- and then think about the things they have to do to maintain power. Because the number one thing they want to do is maintain power. Right. All right. right? So they, they are maintaining power is ultimate to them. And so you cannot negotiate with them. Third thing is you have to tell the Cuban government that any, any kind of exodus, any, any planned exodus, because uh, this is what they also do, they have a relief valve. So now they have a lot of pressure building up inside the, the, the island. So they've done this before. They will then allow people to leave the island um, and head to, to you know, Miami and, and Florida and, and the Florida Straits. What the United States government has to do is any such act will be considered an act of war. And that's been done before. And, you know, and that kind of freezes them and, and doesn't, you know, uh, allow them or really gives them, you know, food for thought about, hey, are we really going to do this? I think they tried to do this in 94 and the Clinton administration said, hey, we're not going to take this. They stopped immediately. And so, you know, we need to make sure that, that the United States and the administration says is very clear about it. We're not changing our policy. And also the Cuban people need to know that the United States is not changing their policy because for many of them, this is a death sentence. Yeah. You know, we entice them to come um, and then they, they, get on, they get on inner tubes uh, and homemade life rafts and thousands and thousands of Cubans have died in the Florida Straits, drowned in the Florida Straits, trying to reach freedom, um, which is really indicative of itself. And you know, people say, well, Cuba's not too bad. Or Bernie Sanders and AOC, hey, that's, you know, that system. They right. taught us how to read, right? Uh, or they have, you know, we have health care. Yeah, oh, yeah, they have great health care. Oh, my God, we were so, we were illiterate, you know, we were, we were in, in thatch huts, you know, back in 1959, you know? That's how stupid they are, okay? <laughs> Uh, you know, they I did find the hypocrisy beautiful, though. And we for 20 years have heard about how great the Cuban nationalized health care is. And then all of a sudden, the White House puts out a statement saying, oh, yeah, they're complaining about their health care. Oh, yeah. It's socialized health care. By the way, you know what they do with their with their doctors. And so they, they train doctors and then they train doctors are then sent away to other countries to help them with their right. with their problems. Right. But then they get the Cuban government gets paid for those doctors by those countries. 
And yet, you know who doesn't get the benefit of that payment? The doctors that are sent. So this is, this is basically modern-day slavery, all right, that the, the Cubans uh, use with their doctors. Uh, they do the same thing with security forces. There's a whole bunch of Cubans now in Venezuela, part of their security forces. Those are all paid for, you know, but the security forces don't get that money. It's the government that gets the money, you know, and, and at the end. And so, you know, again, we, uh, we can't allow them to, to have this exodus. Uh, and, and then we need to help things we can do. We need to help the dissidents that are on the island. We need to help them financially. Um, we need to also try to see how we can establish internet service again in there because what yeah. they've done is, yeah, they've shut down all the internet service. Cuban now the groups can't communicate with each other. Um, and that's, you know, and that's one of the things that the, that's one of the strategies of the Cuban government. When they allow the internet to go in there, they put all these, you know, all these safeguards so they could, they could turn it off at a moment's notice and then stop this kind of uprising. They're trying to stop the uprising, you know, before it even takes off. Yeah. I mean, the first thing you do in an oppressive, oppressive regime in this day and age is cut your internet and what a telltale sign, right? I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, and so, you know, this, this great society that Bernie Sanders and AOC wants us to emulate, right? So here, here's how great it is. Right. It's so great, okay, that, you know, we, you know people are trying to, to come to the United States from all over the world seeking freedom and opportunity. Cuba's so great that, you know, they have to keep you in, all right? <laughs> so they, they can't let you out, okay? And so it's so great. You know, that, hey, why would you want to leave? We're going to keep you in for your own benefit, obviously, you know, uh, because, you know, we want to make sure that you live in the greatest country in the world, Cuba, right, which uh, doesn't have a very good health, health system. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, everybody, they, everybody's the same, by the way. It's, I mean, in that, in that sense, communism works. They're all miserable, okay? <laughs> so, and so it's, it's, a, it's an equal amount of misery, okay, for the entire population, except those that are in the ruling class. That's Those right. are part of the Communist Party. They live a pretty good life, and they're invested in the system. Yeah. Uh, and so they will do everything in their power to make sure that the system stays the same. But because for them, it works just fine, you know, because they're in power and they get and they get all the benefits. One of the things I love about the community you represent, the Cuban American community down there in particular, is that there is absolutely no taking for granted what a, a, a democracy in a capitalist situation looks like in comparison to what the people of Cuba are going through. Right. It, it, and you, you just, it's intoxicating. You go down there, there's just an entrepreneurial spirit and the community really rallies in, in moments like this. I got to imagine the entire Cuban American community down in South Florida is, is, is watching this very closely. No, we are. And anything that happens down there, you know, it's 90 miles away from Key West is about, you know, Cuba is closer to Miami than, than Orlando is. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, that's wild. Yeah, right. And so, um, and there are about a million Cubans or, or, you know, Cuban Americans here. Um, you know, obviously I was born there. So, you know, I, I, I remember Cuba. I remember what it was like. And, um, you know, but then my, my kids are tied to it. You know, even my grandchildren know that, Hey, we came from this place. And, and, but my kids really know, about you know what happened in Cuba and, and what you know my father my mother my wife's you know father and mother went through when we came here and yeah we appreciate America we appreciate America for what it's given us the the opportunity it's given us look I'm a kid that came from Cuba didn't even speak the language I I, I spoke Spanish till I was six 
um, and didn't even speak a word of English until I got here in November of 1960. Uh, and where else, what other country in the world could you say, hey, this is an immigrant kid comes basically with, you know, yeah, we were pretty, you know, we were, we were upper middle class in Cuba, uh, but my dad came here with $10 in his pocket and a watch. Yeah. And he started working as a bellhop in Miami Beach. My mother started working as a secretary. Uh, in what other place, you know, does, do you have a story where somebody can come here, uh, eventually join the fire department, become a city manager, become a commissioner, become a mayor, okay, and then become a congressman? I mean, that doesn't happen anywhere One else. country so, in the world. One country nope. in the world. Nope. Uh, it's, uh, it's only here. And that's why, you know, that's why Cubans love America. That's why we love the flag. You know, that flag is a symbol of freedom. That's why Cubans right now that are demonstrating in, in, in Havana and all that have American flags on. That's Either right. in their mask or they're waving American flags. While some of the people here are burning that flag, all right, they don't understand what, the, what that flag means uh, to the rest of the, of, of the world. You know, it means freedom. It means opportunity. You know, it means justice, you know. And, and, and so, you know, I, I, you know I, I ran for Congress to defend, you know, the American way. I believe in the American way. I, you know, will defend it to, to the death. I do not want my children or grandchildren to be in the same position that my dad was, where you have to make a choice. Hey, you have to leave because, you know, um, because of becoming a communist socialist country and, and you're losing your freedom of expression and thought. Uh, and I don't want my children or grandchildren to go through that. You know, and by the way, if we ever have to go through, go through that, where are we going? Where are we going? Yeah, yeah. there's no other place. This is no it. Other place. You know, this is the last stance, man. And so we're, we're, we're have to fight for the, the heart and soul of America, you know? And, uh, yeah. And, and, and what hap what's happening in Cuba right now is an indication of, you know, what that system leads you to misery. All right. Oppression, um, and, uh, and death, you know, and to, uh, fortunately for some right now, it's leading them to death that they're fighting for their freedom. And the and the oppressive uh, you know security apparatus of the regime is uh, is being brutal, uh, and they have to be they have to be because they know that if they're not, this is the end for them. Well, it's and a good it's a good reminder to those of us who you know don't think about that on a day to day basis and think all the political discussion happening in Washington can't lead to something uh, much more grave. Because if you have any doubts about that, you should travel to South Florida and ask a few people, and you'll get the a similar answer to what we just heard from Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Uh, wonderful answer. I got three big questions for you, sir. Well, let me let me make one more point. Okay. Okay. You want to see the difference between socialism and communism and free enterprise? The only need need is four photographs: Havana, 1959; Miami, 1959; Havana today; Miami today. <laughs> Same kind of people. Okay. Different system. All right. Those four pictures will tell you everything. Havana has gone down since 1959, okay? In Miami, you know, we've built this great international city here. It's not just Cubans that built it, by the way, you know? It's a bunch of immigrants and a bunch of people from here, African-Americans, Native Americans, you know, and, and uh, you know, white Anglo, all of us. We, we are, you know, we work together to build this city. But, you know, I was struck one day, I mean, they, you know, Castro about 20 years ago, look, we built this hospital here that wasn't here in 1950. Really? No kidding. We built 20 hospitals here since 1960, okay? In, in Miami, wow, you built one. Okay. <laughs> okay, right? You know, so, you know, those, take those four pictures, 
That's all you got to do. It doesn't look a lot different from when you left in 1960. There's an including the cars, by the way, for those of you. No, the cars are still there. Yeah, there's still one. 1957 Chevy. You want you want to get one? Go to Cuba. There, there's a whole bunch of them there. Got a little rust on it, but it's uh, still running. Because it has to, right? Because it has to. Yeah. Uh, I love it. All right. So here's the first question we ask everybody. And I think yours is going to be great. Uh, if you could pick your last meal on earth, what would it be? Uh, it would be a uh, porterhouse. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It would be a bone-in ribeye, a big one. And then it would have, uh, on the side, I would also have a uh, Branzino from Il Gabbiano restaurant here in, uh, in Miami. It's uh, fabulous. And then I top it off with like the most, uh, the most decadent uh, chocolate mousse ever made. <laughs> You're sliding in sideways after that. That's a big meal. I love it. <laughs> All right. So it's my last one. I might as well enjoy it. Man. Yeah. That's no, great. you don't have to. You don't have to calorie count on no, your last no, meal. No calories. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. Second question. If you weren't doing this, if you never got into public service, I know you were a fighter firefighter. I know you've had public service in your veins basically since you you came to this country. Um, if you can kind of set that aside and think about your, your pathways in life, what else would you be doing? Well, if I hadn't been a firefighter, I probably would have been a, a, a fighter pilot because uh, I, was, I was accepted to Naval Flight School. And then I had a, uh, a decision to make. And one of them was go to Naval Flight School and, uh, and then lose, uh, lose my girlfriend who later became my wife or stay and become a firefighter. And then I got married and we've been together for about 46 years. That seems like a wise decision in retrospect, right? Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Choosing carefully and wisely from a young yeah. age. Yeah, yeah. But if, I, if it hadn't been that, I mean, that's wherever I got. You know, I guess, you know, if I wouldn't have had that, that, uh, that choice, then I probably wouldn't have uh, gone into the Navy and hopefully become a fighter pilot. You know, a carrier fire, fighter pilot. That's really what, you know, something I really wanted to do. That's great. That's a great answer. All right. Third, third and final question. What motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? I hate to lose. Yeah. I'm a, uh, you know, I played, I, I played basketball in high school and a little college, and I've been an athlete all my life. Uh, and so um, I don't like to lose. Uh, and so I, the thrill of victory is great, uh, but I, I don't like losing. So I like both of them, but I don't like losing. So I prepare myself the best I can to make sure that I win. Uh, and so, you know, that's been – that's how I've – my life has been. I'm at, like I said, I'm, I've been competing all my life in different things, and uh, and I compete to win. I love it. Three great answers, Congressman Carlos Jimenez. I can't thank you enough for your time. Keep us updated on the situation in Cuba. We're obviously very interested on this particular yeah. program. Yeah, play. You know, pray pray for the people of Cuba, and and let's hope that this is the the, the beginning of the end of the regime. Uh, and also, look, this regime is the head of the snake for many of the problems that we're having in Central and South America. And, uh, and if we can help the Cuban people throw off this yoke of communism and end this regime, it'll solve a lot of problems. It'll alleviate a lot of problems. The next, our next target should be Venezuela, okay? And Nicaragua, all right? And the United States should be the beacon of democracy, the defender of democracy in this hemisphere. Um, and, and if we have to you know, take action to do that, we need to. Uh, we only, we're only going to have to do it a couple of times, and then people will figure out, hey, this is the defender of democracy. You know, that, those are our values, and this, this hemisphere should be a democratic hemisphere. Uh, we don't need to put up anymore with these dictators and despots and, 
and, and the like, um, and give the people of this hemisphere freedom like we enjoy here in the United States. Well said, Congressman. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. So, I, I look, I hadn't met him before. He's a thoughtful guy, and he knows what he's talking about. And I think actually perfectly expressed what you were just talking about, Smug, in the sentiment that you find from the Cuban-American community in South Florida and how it shouldn't be any surprise when you see these protesters in Cuba waving American flags. It's because they believe in the promise of America, and they know it's the last place on earth that gives them the opportunity for freedom. That's right. And you've got you know, people in the media writing about how traumatizing and intimidating it is that people wave American flags around the 4th of July or, heaven forbid, put it on the back of their pickup truck. They might be a Trump voter, you know, and then you see these people who've struggled with with the with actual socialism and they love this country more than these people. It's what it means. Like this can really get me going. But, you know, it's it's why it infuriates me to see Olympic athletes you know, on the podium, look the other way or put their head down during the national anthem. Like, have some respect. Have some understanding of what this is about. Because if you look around to other countries, for generation after generation, I don't care what country you're from, you've looked at America as the last, the absolute last bastion of freedom on this planet. And perfectly said. Perfectly said. And you know what, gentlemen? That's another banger of an episode. I mean, we had the emergency pod drop. We had a great uh, episode come out on Tuesday. It's been a great week over here. You it's know? been awesome, man. This is this is the kind of week you love to see at the Variety Program. A lot of hot content. <laughs> so, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>